Amen, amen. And that is what the gift of music and the gift of evangelism put together looks like, friends. Praise God. Thank you for that beautiful, beautiful message. What a great honor it is for me today to speak in the chapel service of my alma mater uh, this morning. And I am pleased to be able to introduce the individual on this earth who has suffered through more of my preaching than anybody else in the world, my wife Karen, who is here today, and I am so grateful. My best friend, partner in all things. Thank you, Dr. Patterson, for your kind invitation and tremendous leadership here at Southwestern Seminary and in Southern Baptist life as a whole. Not long ago, a man and his family joined the church where I serve, transferring their membership from a denomination that has drifted so far into liberalism that he could no longer stand it. And I thought to myself, thank you, Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler and others for your courage and for promoting the conservative resurgence. My life and ministry benefit daily from the glorious truth that Southern Baptists firmly embrace the inerrancy of Scripture. Students, a lot has changed in the 23 years since I walked these hallways. But one thing that has not changed is that graduates never know where God is going to lead them. Today I serve in the town of Sylacauga, Alabama, where we boast of three things. A giant sheet of pure white marble underground, one of only three bluebell plants in America, and the fact that Jim Neighbors of Gomer Pyle fame was born and raised in Sylacauga. Now, Gomer was a simple country bumpkin on a 1960s TV show whose catchphrase was, Golly! And if you're too young to know what I'm talking about, then by all means, go Google Gomer. My subject today is the greatest thing that ever happened to me, which incidentally is also the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Of course, I'm talking about salvation. When the condition of my soul went from sickness to health, from lost to found, from sinner to saint, from death to life, and from the flames of hell to the glories of heaven, I have been blood-bought, redeemed, and justified. I am being refined, purified, and sanctified. I will be resurrected, transformed, and glorified. My greatest boast, my highest claim, my deepest joy, and my sweetest thought is to boldly declare to the world, I have been saved. Your salvation is greater than your grade point average, your job, your family, your health, your bank account, your political party, or the win-loss record of your favorite team. Your salvation is more important than your fantasy football stats, your golf score, or your date this Friday night. Your salvation is more important than the breath in your lungs or the blood coursing through your veins. When a man is lost, it is his worst predicament, his most crushing debt, his heaviest burden, his most vexing trial, the abyss of his life on earth, and the prison bars that trap him in the torture chambers of eternal hell. But when a man is saved, it is his greatest advantage, his most priceless possession, 
His most fortunate condition, the pinnacle of his life on earth and the doorway to his life in eternity. In the book of 3 Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews is building on the foundation of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the prophets, over the universe, over the angels, and over everything and everyone else. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. In his excellent sermon, The Deadly Danger of Drifting Spiritually, Dr. David Allen describes this drift away from the foundation of our faith by Christians not pressing on to spiritual maturity. He points out that while this is a passage about salvation, it is not written to the lost encouraging them to be saved. It is written to the saved encouraging them not to drift. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, in other words, if the word of God is indeed true and reliable with all sins being punished accordingly, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Again, this is not a warning to lost people telling them they must be saved, which they must. But it is a warning to saved people telling us never to get over it. We must not neglect, ignore, forget, despise, or disregard our salvation. We must observe, heed, consider, notice, and ponder our salvation. Let me encourage you this morning not to neglect the story of salvation, the study of salvation, or the significance of salvation. First, do not neglect the story of salvation. The greatest thing that ever happened to me took place when I was 17. But my story really begins much earlier, in the spring of 1955, nine years before I was even born, when my parents were preparing for marriage. My father was raised as a Methodist, and my mother was raised as a Catholic. The Catholics wanted my father to sign a statement promising that any children born into his family would be raised in the Catholic tradition. But being a stubborn man, a trait I am told he passed on to his only son, my father staunchly refused to sign the paper. As a result, my parents eloped and in a display of denominational rebellion, became Episcopalians, a choice not born out of doctrinal conviction, but rather out of marital compromise. And so it was that I grew up in the Episcopal Church, where it seemed to me, as a young boy, the experience was a bit like going to the opera. People attended not because they really enjoyed it, but because it was the respectable thing to do. Just like going to the opera, you got all dressed up in your nicest clothing. Next, you entered a room where the lighting was dim, the music was weird, the people were silent, all the action took place up front, and nobody really understood what was going on. The best part was that after an enormous length of time, they would open the doors in the back and allow you to leave. I always left feeling better about myself for having gone, for I reasoned that if I could endure that, I could endure 
anything. Sadly, back at home, things were happening that I could not handle at all. As the trials of life came, the adults in my family all turned to alcohol and tobacco with the predictable results of anger, drunkenness, insecurity, illness, and even violence. Not only did my parents divorce, but so did all of my aunts and uncles. I knew that something was dreadfully wrong the night my parents had a fight. My mother called the police. The officer came to the front door, spoke to my father, filed a report. Shortly afterward, my father packed a bag and walked out the back door. I was left confused, disillusioned, despondent, lost. Fortunately, I was a pretty well-rounded teenager, good student, decent athlete, capable musician, and thus I kept myself very busy with school activities. Most people would not have assumed there was anything wrong. But deep down, I had grown bitter and dissatisfied with life. And the religion I had been taught was simply no substitute for knowing Jesus personally. I read my Bible and prayed every night in my ignorance, placing my hope upon that which I now know to be the false doctrine of works salvation. At age 17, I was invited by my sister Kathy to attend Prestonwood Baptist Church with her. Foolishly, I responded, Kathy, I would be happy to visit with you, but I am never going to become a Baptist. This is why one should never say never. God knew I would get saved, become a Baptist, join a Baptist church, marry a Baptist, graduate from a Baptist seminary, and even become a Baptist preacher. When I visited the church, what a profound difference I discovered. The music was not sad, but happy. The church was not dark, but cheerful. Why were people so glad? Why was everyone so happy? It was almost as if they already knew they were going to heaven one day. They were not just hoping, they already had the joy of their salvation. They boldly preached about many things, but I was especially glad to hear them preach against alcohol and tobacco, for I had seen firsthand the pain and destruction that they cause. Now everybody had a Bible in their hand. I learned that the secret to moving up in a Baptist church was to purchase a giant study Bible. In Sunday school, as the passage is read, you simply scan the footnotes for any fact unavailable to the hapless owners of minuscule Bibles with inadequate notation. When the teacher asks a question, you say something like, According to Ryrie, the earliest manuscripts suggest the former interpretation. Your classmates will look at you like you're Moses. In two years, you will be a Sunday school teacher. In five, you will be a deacon or a WMU director. And if you are called into the ministry, well... 35 years later, you might find yourself preaching in the chapel service at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
One Sunday morning, I trusted in Jesus and walked the aisle. Shortly afterward, I was in the portable building where the youth choir rehearsed under the direction of our music minister, Dick Baker. The youth minister at the time, a brother David Allen, had just accepted the call to serve another church. But before he left, he met with me in that portable building and went over the plan of salvation, confirming my decision, and yes, leading me in saying the sinner's prayer. Little did I know some 30 years later, that prayer would somehow become controversial with many people suggesting it is responsible for sending more people to hell than all the bars in America. Listen, blaming the sinner's prayer for a false profession of faith is like blaming an old flame's stationary for a false profession of love. The blame lies not with the form of expression, but rather with the lack of sincerity in the heart of the false professor. If one genuinely means the sinner's prayer, repenting of sin, confessing one's faith, trusting in Christ, and calling out for salvation in his name, then it does not lead you to hell at all. Rather, it expresses the faith by which you appropriate the grace that leads you to heaven. My life was changed. I was glad and not sad, happy and not sappy, hoping and not moping. In place of religion, I now had a relationship, joy instead of sorrow, light instead of darkness, truth instead of lies, day instead of night, and life instead of death. Listen, you have a story of salvation. It may not be filled with sordid details of immoral living where you did drugs at four and became a dealer at seven, ran a gang at 10 and did hard time at 12. But you have a story. Do not neglect the story of the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Do not neglect the story of salvation. But secondly, do not neglect the study of salvation. I must confess that I did not develop an interest in studying salvation doctrine until about a decade ago when I was searching the internet and ran across a blog where pastors discussed matters of ministry and theology. Since we were all Southern Baptists, I figured we would pretty much agree on everything. <clears throat> but as it turned out, we hardly agreed on anything. Oh, we shared a basic sense of orthodoxy, the virgin birth, the trinity, the scriptures... But before long, it became clear that on a number of doctrinal and practical issues, Calvinists saw things one way and traditionalists saw things another. So I began to explore just what these fellow Southern Baptists were all about. Along the way, I developed friendships with fellow pastors who agreed with me. One thing we noticed was that Calvinists had formed a number of ministry organizations promoting their views on church history church polity, church planting, cultural engagement, and other topics. They sponsored conferences, gave away books, promoted authors and speakers, and wore matching t-shirts. We counted a total of six different new Calvinist organizations and decided that there should be at least one for the rest of us. And so in the summer of 2013, Connect 316 was formed. 
We are the first and I believe the only ministry fellowship in Southern Baptist life committed to the Hobbs Rogers doctrinal tradition. The basic view of salvation embraced by every primary confessor of the Baptist faith and message. E.Y. Mullins in 1925, Herschel Hobbs in 1963, and Adrian Rogers in 2000. In other words, we are not part of the new Calvinist movement. Rather, we are an organized, respectful response to that movement. On our website at connect316.net, we offer a number of resources to help you study the salvation doctrine from uh, the traditional Southern Baptist perspective. There is even an article on our page explaining the very name traditionalist. I won't take the time to go into it, but we are not claiming that we are the only tradition in Southern Baptist life. We know that Calvinism is also a tradition. We do believe, however, that our convention will fly higher with two healthy wings instead of only one. Our tradition stretches back to the Anabaptists in Switzerland in the 1500s, the General Baptists in England in the 1600s, the Sandy Creek Baptists in America in the 1700s and 1800s, and the Baptist faith and message primary confessors in the 1900s. So let me take just a moment to share with you a sample of the many resources we review and promote for you to study salvation doctrine on our website at connect316.net. Fifteen years ago, two Southern Baptist professors wrote, God so loved the world, traditional Baptists, and Calvinism. This not only demonstrates an early use of the term traditional for our viewpoint, but it also provides a concise summary of the differences between Calvinism and traditionalism. In 2012, the term was again picked up in a statement of the traditional Southern Baptist understanding of God's plan of salvation by Dr. Eric Hankins, who now serves as the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Fairhope, Alabama. Over 1,100 people have now signed this document, making it the most attested confession in Southern Baptist history other than the Baptist faith and message. Notable signers include Paige Patterson, Chuck Kelly, David Allen, Steve Lemke, Richard Land, Malcolm Yarnell, Steve Gaines, and the late Roy Fish, among many others. If you have not signed it, this statement remains available for your signature at connect316.net. If, in fact, the statement expresses your view of salvation doctrine, then I urge you to sign it and register your convictions. Whosoever Will is a groundbreaking collection of essays drawn from the 2008 John 316 conference in Woodstock, Georgia, with chapters from Jerry Vines, Paige Patterson, Richard Land, Kenneth Keithley, Steve Lemke, and many others. Readers are offered a clear and scholarly rebuttal of the major claims of Calvinism. This is a great place to begin your study of salvation doctrine. Anyone Can Be Saved is a more recent collection of essays originating from the Journal for Baptist Theology and Ministry at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Rather than addressing the subject through the classic Calvinist-Armenian framework, this book elaborates upon the ten articles of the traditional statement, building a case for our view that is consistent with both the scriptures and the Baptist faith and message. You will also find on our website a soteriological assessment designed by yours truly 
entitled, What is My Salvation Doctrine? Approximately 1,300 people from various denominational backgrounds have taken this online assessment. It was designed to help people figure out what they believe and was never really intended to be a scientific poll, which is to say that we made no attempt to account for sampling bias. We just put it out on the internet for anyone who wished to take the assessment. Still, the results have been interesting, with 71% of respondents fitting in the broadly traditionalist category, in which all three views disaffirm the U, the L, and the I of the tulip, while 29% identify with the broadly Calvinistic category as either four- or five-point Calvinists. I won't take the time to go over each of the five views, but if you take the online assessment, I believe you will develop a deeper appreciation for the clear differences between them. No discussion of traditional salvation doctrine would be complete without mentioning the name Adam Harwood. The spiritual condition of infants explains how man is born with an inherited sinful nature, but not guilty for the sin of Adam. This has implications for theology concerning the issues of depravity and inability. It also has implications for ministry as pastors care for parents whose infants and toddlers pass away before reaching a stage of accountability. We also link to a brilliant chapel lecture Harwood delivered at Truett McConnell University in 2011 entitled, The Gospel, A Message for Every Person. Harwood's thesis that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message for every person because God loves every person, Christ died for every person, and God wants to save every person may not sound controversial to us, but many Calvinists can only affirm these statements after a lengthy process of nuancing them into oblivion. Speaking of the Calvinist tendency to use language in a less than transparent manner, Pastor Ronnie Rogers has done us a great service by writing the book Reflections of a Disenchanted Calvinist, The Disquieting Realities of Calvinism. Rogers composes beautiful sentences using a masterful vocabulary that will bring you much closer to your dictionary. A former Calvinist himself he not only knows how to speak the language, but he also knows how to expose the logical contradictions within. Another former Calvinist is Doug Sayers, author of Chosen or Not. A committed layperson and an active Gideon, Sayers made his book available for a free download. He shows how the Calvinist doctrines of unconditional election and irresistible grace confuse and undermine the simple gospel of repentance and faith. His book contains excellent illustrations and shows a firm grasp of the theological and philosophical issues involved. Yet another former Calvinist is Dr. Leighton Flowers, author of The Potter's Promise, a brilliant commentary explaining how a corporate election to service view of Romans 9 is superior to the individual election to salvation view favored by Calvinists. We have also linked to his excellent website at soteriology101.com where you will find many resources supporting our view of salvation, especially his podcast, which is the only traditionalist podcast available on an internet featuring hundreds of podcasts promoting Calvinism. 
Two other shameless plugs are worth mentioning this morning. SBCToday.com is a Southern Baptist news and opinion blog published by Connect 316. Our current editor is Kyle Gulledge, and we invite you to read the blog daily and consider submitting an article for publication. We also offer the 316 Roundtable group on Facebook, which Connect 316 is pleased to moderate. So far, I have urged you neither to neglect the story of salvation nor the study of salvation, which brings us finally to the significance of salvation. Do not neglect the significance of salvation. Some people ask me, well, why do you view this issue as being so important? Uh, we simply have a minor little difference of opinion here that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Let us ignore this trivial issue and just move on. But in response to this question, let me simply point out that the Bible does not prohibit us from neglecting so trivial a salvation. It prohibits us from neglecting so great a salvation. Why is it so great, so important, so weighty, so meaningful, so substantial, so momentous? If indeed salvation is the most important thing that ever happens to anybody on the face of the earth, then it stands to reason we should probably spend a little time thinking about it. Admittedly, there is no end to the long list of doctrinal debates. But whatever else we may get wrong about God, let us be certain we get salvation right. Salvation doctrine is important because our view of salvation produces broad doctrinal implications and deep practical applications. It affects nearly everything we believe theologically and everything we practice ministerially. This debate between Calvinism and traditionalism may be about much more than just two competing soteriologies. In fact, it is entirely possible to frame this debate as though we were actually dealing with two competing systematic theologies. In other words, because Calvin's institutes address the broad spectrum of theological categories, we are actually debating much more than just the single issue of salvation. If we are not careful, a myriad of related beliefs and practices will enter our camp hidden within the Trojan horse of Calvinism. In the interest of time, I will briefly mention, though not fully developed, the relationship of Calvinism to a few of these other theological categories. Patriology deals with the study of the Father, and particularly his love for all of humanity. Under Calvinism, he possesses a very weak love for the reprobate, reduced sometimes to the mere provision of rainfall upon the flowers of the unrighteous. If God has chosen, actively or passively, before the foundation of the world, to place the reprobate unconditionally into a category from which they can never possibly escape, then this is, as even Calvin admitted, a dreadful decree. That's why Dave Hunt wrote the book, wrote the book what love is this? And much more recently, Jerry Walls has written, Does God Love Everyone? The subtitle reads, The Heart of What is Wrong with Calvinism. I will never forget the first time 
a Calvinist, looked me straight in the eye and said, God doesn't love everybody. I was speechless. And frankly, that doesn't happen much. Ecclesiology is the study of the church and particularly the way we make decisions. The Baptist faith and message endorses congregational polity where decisions are pastor-led, deacon-served, committee-worked, and congregation-approved. But our Calvinist friends are so fond of elder-led and sometimes even elder-rule forms of polity that one Calvinist pastor infamously attributed congregationalism to the devil himself. Now, I was not so much troubled that he preferred Presbyterian polity to Southern Baptist polity, but I was troubled that he attributed to Satan a polity I believe comes from God. Anthropology is the study of man and especially the responsibility of man. Can man made in the image of God freely respond to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the gospel? I say yes. But many Calvinists would say no. In fact, Dr. Malcolm Yarnell once said, Calvinism vitiates anthropology. He's right. Now, I agree that I am unable to save myself, but I disagree that I am unable humbly to make the decision to accept Jesus' offer to save me. Hamartiology is the study of sin and logically leads to the question of whether or not my inherited sinful nature also renders me guilty of Adam's sin so that I am born already guilty with implications for our view of depravity that we have already discussed. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. And while there appears to be no direct logical connection, almost every observer of New Calvinism points to the surprising partnership between New Calvinism and the charismatic movement, a development so startling that even older Calvinists like John MacArthur have denounced it publicly. Eschatology, or the study of end times, in a similar vein, can point to a correlation between New Calvinists and post-millennialism, or at the very least, optimistic premillennialism like that espoused by John Piper. The point is not simply that salvation doctrine causes each of these distinct viewpoints, but rather that we find correlations and associations so that seemingly the Calvinists are more or less together on a broad spectrum of theological issues. We see this practically in our missiology or the study of missions. Generally, the harvest mandate challenges us to reach souls wherever they may be found so that if the fish are not biting on one side of the boat, we cast our nets upon the other. Go where you can reach the most souls. By contrast, the frontier mandate challenges us to reach souls where we have never reached them before. This mandate, though embraced by both sides, has special appeal to the Calvinist who views the Great Commission as God reaching the elect few from every people group, whereas a traditionalist might view the task more from a pure harvest mandate perspective. Frankly, balance is what we need here. And that is exactly what Dr. Robin Dale Hathaway calls for in his excellent Southwestern Journal article, A Course Correction in Missions, 
rethinking the 2% threshold. The point is that salvation doctrine is significant because of its broad doctrinal implications. It may be that we are not merely debating between two soteriologies, but for all practical purposes, between two systematic theologies. But where the rubber really meets the road is not in the academic theological arena, but in the practical aspects of everyday ministry. What we believe impacts what we do. And it stands to reason that if we have changed what we believe about salvation, then we have probably also changed what we are doing as a result. If concerning salvation we are doing something differently than we used to do, then we must ask the question, are the results better or worse? And if the results are worse, we should question our new practices and the new beliefs which produced them. Quickly now, I've already mentioned the sinner's prayer. Some people don't like repeat-after-me commitments. But when you think about it, it's the way nearly all of us got married. Granted, some people break their marriage vows, but it's not because they repeated them after the minister. It's because they were insincere, failing truly to make the commitment they claimed they were making. The use of evangelists has declined dramatically in our day and time. The Bible speaks of the gift of evangelism. We are missing out on these God-called ministers just on a purely mathematical level. If you subtract six services from your calendar every year because you are not having fall and spring revivals, that is six fewer occasions for people to trust in Jesus and get saved. Multiply that to all of our churches and there's probably a few thousand souls right there. Are we not leaving some meat on the bone? Altar calls are falling out of favor. Some ministers just can't handle the awkwardness when no one comes forward. I've been doing this a little while, and I can tell you something. Some days I think a bunch of people are going to walk the aisle and nobody comes. Other days I can barely manage to get through the invitation. I don't think a soul is going to walk forward, but when the invitation is given, here they come, people I've never even met before. And all I can think is this, what if I had not given that invitation? Would they have made their decision or would they remain in their seats unchanged? God and country services have fallen out of favor, especially, I believe, among are more Calvinistic churches. Perhaps they are more attached to the regulative principle of worship. But for whatever reason, I have personally found that more of our traditionalist churches are open to such services while more of our Calvinist churches avoid them entirely. Similarly, our positions on alcohol and tobacco reveal an unusual situation whereby some new Calvinists, even pastors, very openly smoke pipes and cigars just as they drink beer and wine. They may even homebrew the beer themselves, attempting to use it as an outreach to identify with other smokers and drinkers. Listen, when Paul said he had become all things to all men so that he might by all means save some, he did not mean to become a smoker and a drinker in order to reach the smokers and the drinkers. 
Sin is not a form of outreach. By and large, the pastors who are smoking and drinking are not the traditionalists, but some of the new Calvinists whose views on these matters are much more like the Presbyterians. The last one I'll mention is the mode of baptism. Would you believe that some Southern Baptist churches today are receiving as members those who have merely been sprinkled but have never been immersed? Immersion is the only mode of baptism recognized in the Baptist faith and message. This creates an entire class of non-baptized Baptists. And this is prevalent, especially among our Calvinistic churches, as they receive Presbyterians, for example, into their membership. Southern Baptists cannot help but wonder what is happening as we increasingly embrace the Presbyterian view of salvation doctrine, church government, the mode of baptism, avoidance of the altar call, the use of beverage alcohol, the approval of societal missions funding, and so on. It is naive to think that we can gradually reform our beliefs without simultaneously reforming our practices. And the question we must ask is whether or not these reformed practices are making things better or worse. So why do I care so much about Southern Baptist salvation? Why do I even care about preserving a denominational heritage that is not even my own? Because when I was 17, lost in my sin, headed to a Christless grave with no hope and no joy and no purpose in life, it was Southern Baptists who told me about Jesus, who told me how to be saved, who shared with me the gospel of grace, who baptized me and taught me and loved me and discipled me and led me to Jesus who saved my soul. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I promise it's the best thing that ever happened to you. So do not neglect the story of salvation. Do not neglect the study of salvation. Do not neglect the significance of salvation. How shall we escape punishment if we neglect so great a salvation? This is no trifling matter, no passing concern, no inconsequential belief. In the words of the old hymn by Jack Schofield, we are saved by his power divine, saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete for I'm saved, saved, saved.